Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. So thank you all. Thank you all so much for being here. And I want to invite up um, my friend, our friend, Annie Minkoff to introduce Rabbi Wolpe. And we'll also welcome uh, Ricky, Min, uh, Ricky Kaplan uh, here with us tonight as well, Sherman's daughter. Welcome, Andy. So I'd like to welcome you all to the fourth Sherman Minkoff Memorial Lecture. And uh, we are privileged here tonight to hear from Rabbi David Wolpe. Uh, rabbi Walby was named the most influential rabbi in America by Newsweek magazine. I guess, Rabbi, that's kind of winning the World Series of Rabbis. <laughs> and he's also been named uh, one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world by the Jerusalem Post. He is the Max Webb Senior Rabbi at Temple Sinai which is a magnificent edifice on Wilshire Boulevard in West Los Angeles. I told Rabbi Wolpe when I was a graduate student at uh, UCLA, that was my congregation. And uh, I went there for the high holidays and for other services as well. Uh, I think Rabbi Wolpe was probably in kindergarten then, so our paths <laughs> did not cross. <laughs> but uh, I have very, very fond memories of Temple Sinai. Uh, Rabbi Wolpe, previously taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, the American Jewish University in Los Angeles, uh, um, Hunter College, and my alma mater, UCLA. Uh, he's a weekly columnist for the New York Jewish Week and a weekly Torah columnist for the Jerusalem Post. He's uh, engaged very widely in public debates uh, with those who do not think the way that he does about religion and its place in the world. He has spoken in numerous public and scholastic uh, scholarly forums and has been a scholar in residence uh, all over the world, from Israel to India to points in between and uh, all around the world. He's the author of eight books and uh, the latest book is David, The Divided Heart, uh, it was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Awards, and it's been optioned for a movie. Uh, is Brad Pitt going to start? <laughs> um, anyway, the books are available uh, after the lecture, and uh, once you hear him, I think you will also want to read what he has to say. So it's my pleasure to introduce to you Rabbi David Wolpe. First of all, thank you so much for the gracious introduction. I know it sounds impressive that it was optioned for a movie, but actually in Los Angeles, if your book is not optioned for a movie, then they don't allow you to be a rabbi in the congregation. <laughs> and also I wanna say uh, in Dr. Minkoff's memory that I grew up in Philadelphia and uh, David Rosenbaum over there was a classmate of mine from sixth grade on. And this year, the Phillies, I just want to say, we'll see. It's a good start. It's a good start. Um, so I also, before I begin, the end of the throat clearing is 
that Rush Mooley and I met each other many years ago. And what I think is clear about him and is worth repeating, even though it's not unfamiliar to all of you, is that everybody says they want to do good in the world, but not everybody does good in the world. And that he does good in the world is pretty indisputable. And that is a beautiful thing uh, in a rabbi. Um, however, he gave me an impossible topic, probably deliberately, which is the future of the Jews. Now, I remember many years ago, Rabbi Larry Hoffman, oh no, no, I'm sorry, it was Larry Kushner, sorry, different Larry. It was Larry Kushner and I were supposed to do a presentation for the New York Board of Rabbis. And we hadn't talked about it, we didn't know what we were gonna do. And they called me up and they said, your title is due today, what's your title? What are you gonna talk about? So I quickly called Rabbi Kushner and I said, like, what are we, what are we gonna talk about? And he said, I have a title that always works. It's great, what is it? He said, Judaism at the crossroads. <laughs> so the easy answer is of course, we're at the crossroads. We could go this way, everything will be fine. We go that way, everything will be terrible. But of course that's not, it's never so simple. And part of, part of what I want to say in speaking about this topic, which I am going to speak about it, but recognized that they did a meta study of all the predictions that experts made in politics, in economics, in, in sports, in all these fields, and the experts came out less than random chance, less. So I will tell you what the Jewish future is, and then I will go back to Los Angeles and people will go and do the opposite of what I said, because that's just how the world generally works. So I don't want you to think that I have this special, but I'll give you some general rules and things to look out for. And the first thing to look out for, it's not even to look out for, but to appreciate is that we care at all about this topic. There's a philosopher named Scheffler who wrote a fascinating book, very small book, called Death and the Afterlife, which has nothing to do with the afterlife, as we think of it. He said the following. In fact, I'm gonna talk about it this Shabbat, so this is like a tryout for my sermon this Shabbat. <laughs> if you don't like this, I'll talk about something else. He said, it is a fascinating thing that if I were to say to you, in 50 years, the human race will cease to exist. Now, if you have children, it's a different calculation, but let's say when your children or your children's children are like the P.D. James novel, that everybody becomes infertile, so there are no more human beings, and therefore in a hundred years or whatever, the world will cease to exist. He said, it is remarkable that when you ask most people, they say it makes something essential about their life meaningless to know that people will cease to exist. Nobody would do cancer research. They wouldn't do research in medieval history anymore because there aren't gonna be any people anymore. And yet he said, every individual human being knows for a certainty that they will cease to exist, but it doesn't make their life meaningless. Which means that in a sense, we care more about the collective than we do even about ourselves, which is the opposite of what we usually think. We think we're very selfish. 
We think ultimately we only care about ourselves. But the truth is if there were no people, it feels like that drains the meaning out of life, even though we know we won't be here in the future. And when I read that book and I knew that I was coming here to speak, I read it just a few weeks ago. I thought Jews work like that. We know all of us that we will individually cease to exist. I hope I'm not bringing you news that you are not aware of because it would be really bad news if you didn't know that before I just told you. But that doesn't make life meaningless. Instead, it's like what, what he calls the Alvy Singer question. I don't know how many of you remember in Annie Hall when, when, when Woody Allen's a kid and he doesn't want to do his homework because the universe is expanding, right? And his mother says to him, Brooklyn is not expanding. It's like, okay, it'll happen in a billion years, but still by then Elon Musk will have relocated us to some other galaxy and, and it won't matter. But we really care about the Jewish future very, very much. And it's, there's something deeply dispiriting about the idea that the world will continue, but it won't have Jews in it. And so the first thing that I want to say about the Jewish future, which is, I, I understand a statement of faith, but I'm going to back it up a little bit, is the whenever the world ceases to exist whether it is in 10,000 years or a billion years the last sound that will be heard is some jew going i can't believe i'm the last <laughs> it's awful what's happening you know that old joke about how the meteor is coming to the earth right and it's going to destroy the world and what's the headline in the yiddish newspaper quickly they have to put out a headline world about to be destroyed, Jews hit hardest, right? <laughs> but it's first worth thinking about, before we think about the Jewish future, why are we still here? Because one of the remarkable facts about the Jew, when you ask Jews, why did Jews exist? Sometimes they say something that really, if you think about it, makes no sense, which is we're here because they hated us. I have news for you. A lot of people throughout human history have been hated. Most of them are gone. That's why you don't hear about them. One of the amazing things about reading the Bible is you recognize the only reason anyone knows anything about the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Canaanites is because they were enemies of the Jews. It's the only reason. If you went back to the ancient world and you said to the Assyrians, by the way, Assyrians, who are the empire that control most of the known world. The only reason anyone's going to care about you in thousands of years is because these tiny little people are going to think of you as enemies. They would have thought you were crazy. But nobody talks about Babylonians or Assyrians or any of these vast empires unless you study ancient history or you're Jewish. <laughs> That's it which is remarkable. And so when people make prophecies about how the Jews are going to disappear, I always tell them the first thing they have to read was Ravidovitz's great essay called The Ever-Dying People. And he quotes how in every generation, Jews have said, it's all over, we're the last, right? Hebrew poets who 150 years ago said, no one's gonna read us anymore. 
because who is ever going to read Hebrew? Hebrew is dying out. This is before there was an entire country that spoke that language. And, and so you should take a certain amount of comfort from the reality of Jewish history that the future of the Jews is just as bleak today as it was a thousand years ago. And yet, go figure, we're still here and much, much, much sunnier than it was 75 years ago, much. Um, which is one of the things, you know, we do very, as Americans and as Jews, we really do suffer from a lack of historical perspective. Things have never been worse than they are today. When I hear that, I think, open a book, <laughs> any book, practically. There are a billion times when things were much worse than they are today. They were worse politically. They were worse in terms of polarization. Have you not heard of the Civil War? It was very polarizing, the Civil War, <laughs> really. And also, the other part of this is that we sometimes don't appreciate how powerful and pervasive the Jewish influence is even in places where we don't think of the Jews having influence. So let me just give you a quick example. Um, I had an amazing trip to, uh, I, what happened was, actually I should tell the story. It's really, it was a, it was a good, it was a good example of mentoring. I didn't do the mentoring, so this is not about to be self-congratulatory. Um, I, I do that, don't get me wrong. I do, I definitely do this, but not at the moment. So Frank Luntz, whom some of you may know, he's a political pollster, he's moved right, now he's moved left, but he's a political pollster and, and a lovely guy. And he mentors people from NYU Abu Dhabi. And he always brings his mentees to my office. And so a couple of them came to my office and we were talking about all sorts of different things. And one of them grew up in a refugee camp in Ethiopia. His family's from South Sudan and they have to flee, lives in Ethiopia. So he's telling me the story of, and, and anyway, in the course of the conversation, he asked me whether I would ever visit his refugee camp. So of course I said, yes. What do you say? No, I would never visit your refugee camp from which you miraculously escaped. And now you're a college student, the first one in like, the history of your family or your village, but I won't go. So I said, of course I'd visit. So then he keeps telling me his story and Frank says to him, stop. He says, you've just got an influential person to say they'll visit your refugee camp. Don't keep talking. <laughs> say to him, when would you go? Would you go here? Would you go there? Pin him down. So he did. He said, if Frank goes, will you go with him? And I said, yes. So we went to Rwanda and to Ethiopia, okay? And this was just two months ago. It was an amazing trip. The refugee camp, it was heartbreaking. We went to a refugee camp, 61,000 people, one doctor, wow. one doctor. I said to the head of the refugee camp, what do you most need? You know what they most needed? Most needed mosquito nets, cost pennies. Right. But all of that is by way of saying, so we're in Rwanda now. Rwanda, you may or may not know, I mean, Rwanda had a terrible genocide. And in some ways, I, I put this in huge quotation marks, in some ways worse than the Holocaust, simply because in the Holocaust, other people did it to us. And therefore you could say we were persecuted by them, but in Rwanda, of course, they live together now. 
which means that your parents might have killed my parents or you might have killed my parents and I have to go to work with you day after day after day. It's only 28 years ago. A million people killed in the course of six, seven weeks and not taken on trains and brought to, uh, to camps, but clubbed down in the streets, people who went into people's homes, killed their children, killed them. I mean, horrendously awful. It's terrible to compare tragedies in some ways. Some are unprecedented in other ways. And anyway, the Genocide Museum, by the way, that they have there, which is the first of two things I want to tell you, is modeled on Yad Vashem and has as a history of genocide, first it has the Shoah and it says, this is, you know, and then it talks about Bosnian genocide, Cambodian genocide, it has Rwanda, where there is this hall of children and I walk in and the first child is named David and they have his picture and they, he was 10 years old, what he, what he loved, football, his family, and then how he was killed, tortured to death. So I realized I had to learn more about this. And so I picked up the, the best known book about it, which is called, We Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow We Will Be Killed Together With Our Families. It was written by Philip Gurevich, who's a New Yorker reporter, who next year apparently is coming out with a new book on Rwanda and the effort at reconciliation, but that's a separate issue. The title of his book, is based on a letter that was written by seven pastors to the head of their church, pleading with him to get them out. He did nothing. He ran away actually to America by himself, totally left them there to die and they all died. And, but he kept the letter. Here's what I wanna tell you about that letter though. The beginning is, we wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed together with our families. The end of the letter, the last sentence, reads as follows. And so we pray that we will be saved as Esther saved the Jews. Thousands of years later, in sub-Saharan Africa, who are they turning to, to describe a story of salvation? But the Jewish people. That influence is pervasive in the world for good, for good. And so when we talk about why we want Judaism to survive, it's not for purely chauvinistic reasons, but because we honestly do believe that what we give the world genuinely matters. I mean, the United Nations, it has a, a, a legend above the, and what is the legend? It comes from Isaiah. When the world wants to express a universal sentiment, that is the one universal institution in the world. It, by the way, the line is, Lo goel you know, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But it's the Jewish prophet who spoke that. So when we talk about the Jewish future, it's not only because we're us and we want us to continue, it's also because we're us and we really do believe that the world is a better place for our having been in it and will be a better place if we continue to be in it if what we practice has something to do with our tradition. So let me start, uh, start, but, but not start the, the, the talk, but start the 
the question of what kind of Judaism. Because the future of Jews, I know that what a lot of Jews automatically think of is, okay, so maybe ultra-Orthodox Jews who reproduce a lot and who retain will continue, but what about those of us who are not? And the first thing I wanna remind you of is the Yiddish saying that Jews are like other people, only more so. <laughs> and here's what that means. If you ask, why is it that fundamentalism in Judaism seems to be thriving? Why is orthodoxy doing well and non-orthodoxy is numerically not doing as well? The answer is because that's true in every religion in the world right now. It's true in Hinduism. It's true in Christianity. It's true in Islam. The more literalist the movement, the better they are doing. 70 years ago, the reason that Ben-Gurion gave personal status rights to the ultra-Orthodox was because he thought they were gonna disappear. Everything changes, everything changes. And if you extrapolate from current trends, you will get it wrong. So the idea that because we're declining now must mean that we will inevitably decline is just as correct, I think, as when Ben-Gurion said, because they're declining now, they will inevitably decline. When the world changes, so do we. We are not separate from the world. And when there is, as there has been before, an exodus of traditional Jews, they'll go to less traditional forms of Judaism. But that's a sociological shift. And that might not happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, next 10 years. We don't know. And that's one of the reasons why our job is actually not to know the future or to be dispirited by possibilities of the future, but to focus as much as we can on the present, to teach as much as we can, to learn as much as we can, because the future will come no, no matter what we do, and we can only try to nudge it in the direction that we believe it is good for it to go. But in order to do that, you have to believe that we have a reason to do it. And it's actually the future of the Jews depends on the conviction of the purpose of the Jews. That's what you really need. You have to believe that it matters that there are Jews and that we have something to give to the world. In other words, I would almost say, and I will qualify this, you have to believe that we're a chosen people. You have to believe it. Otherwise, why bother? Because it's, it's a pain in the neck to be a Jew, right? It's not easy. And I want you to know, I had this, my brother is a professor at Emory. And so is the Dalai Lama. There's a point to all this. So, no, my, the, the end of this is, this is not a syllogism. Therefore, my brother is the Dalai Lama. No. <laughs> I just realized it sounded like that. My brother's a professor, so is the Dalai Lama, so obviously. Um, but I bring this up because a couple of years ago, when I was on sabbatical, he brought a bunch of em Emory students to meet with the Dalai Lama. So I went there too, because they asked me to speak to the Tibetan monks about how you survive in exile, because we Jews are good at that. 
And so my brother and his wife and I all had an audience first with the Dalai Lama. So we all sit down in his office. The very first thing he says, he looks at me, he points at me and he says, what's this about the chosen people anyway? <laughs> so I didn't want to say to him, you brought me here so that I could talk to the monks about how to survive in exile. So what are you giving me a hard time for? Because it's not nice to yell at the Dalai Lama. So <laughs> what I did say was, I said, it's true. Jews believe we have a special mission in this world. I said, but that doesn't mean we believe that no one else has a special mission. Other people could easily, I mean, look, I didn't say this then, but if, you, if you're Italian and you look at, you know, the Renaissance and at Michelangelo, and you could say Italians have a special mission in this world. I have no quarrel with that. So he starts to laugh and he goes, yeah, Tibetans think we're special too. <laughs> I said, of course you do. Like, find me the group that says, oh, we're not special, right? There is no such thing. The only people that are embarrassed about it, though, are the Jews. <laughs> There used, to, there used to be a rabbi who would go around to college campuses and he used to say all the time, he would say, if a student tells me he's a Protestant, I know he's a Protestant. If he tells me he's a Catholic, I know he's a Catholic. If he tells me he's a human being, I know he's a Jew. <laughs> if we were unembarrassed about the idea that there is a specialness to the fact that we have been here for thousands of years, that we have Isaiah and Maimonides and Ruth and Deborah and endless men, women, martyrs, scholars, teachers, heroes, then we wouldn't feel so uncomfortable about the notion that to be proud of being Jewish is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And to be aware that hatred of Jews is never just about hatred of Jews. It's always about hatred of certain values that Jews represent. If you think about why people, I mean, I shared with Rabbi Shmuley earlier, my favorite line about anti-Semitism. I, yeah, only rabbis have favorite lines about anti-Semitism, which was from Maurice Samuel. He said, someone once asked him, why, why do people hate Jews? And he said, no one loves their alarm clock. Because the Jewish tradition and the Jewish people have again and again and again, let the world know when something is going wrong. And it doesn't end with us. My congregation is about 60% Iranian. 1979 to 1980, almost overnight, they all had to leave everything they knew, their land, their everything they knew. I mean, really, and, and, and like every mass emigration, there are a million untold tragedies in that. I remember the first week or two I was at the synagogue, I quoted a poem in a sermon. A man came up to me, an older man, Persian, and he said to me in broken English, I know volumes of Persian poetry, but no one anymore to hear it. And I just thought, you know, when you lose everything, when you can never go back to the town of your childhood, 
when the people that you grew up with, many of whom obviously weren't Jewish, don't want to see you in their country anymore. That's an unbelievable, but it didn't stop there. It's never like, we'll get rid of the Jews and everything will be fine. No, hatred of the Jews is always hatred of things that the Jews represent, and therefore it always grows beyond the Jews. In Iran, in Nazi Germany, in Inquisition Spain, all of those places. And part of the purpose of surviving as a Jewish people is not so that we will serve as a trigger, but so that we will preserve the values that people who hate us also hate. And whether they hate them on the right or on the left is not at the moment my concern, thank God. But we do represent them. And the idea of what it is that we're supposed to carry into the world, which is that God demands goodness of us. And that when we fail, we have to acknowledge our failure. I don't know if you're aware of this. A lot of Jews think you confess once a year. It's not true. There's a confessional in every morning service because you sin every day. And, and it's just like when you listen to a professional musician or you watch a professional athlete and you think they're great, but they think they did, they were terrible. It's like, I was embarrassed at that performance. You think, my God, that was amazing. The more you think of your own soul and the more you work on it, the more you will notice the flaws and difficulties. And it's a beautiful story about Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel, walking to synagogue one day and man said to him, where are you going? He said, I'm going to synagogue. And the guy says, you know, I'm a good guy. I don't really feel like I live by be nice to others. I don't really feel like I go to, need to go to synagogue. And Heschel said, oh, I envy you. I'm always saying the wrong thing or forgetting to say the right thing. I'm always accidentally ignoring somebody or hurting somebody. I really need to go to synagogue. I need God. Now, who do you think was a better custodian of their soul. And so we really do bring into the world this sense that it matters what you do. And it matters how you hear, not only yourself, but others. So I don't think that's gonna go away. I think that, that human beings need that and they need us as we need them. And that we are not only a particular tradition, although we are, but we're also a universal tradition. The beautiful line that Cynthia Ozick has about the shofar. She said, you know, if you look at a shofar, it has a narrow end and a broad end. If you start off by blowing in the broad end, you get nothing. If you start off by blowing in the narrow end, you get a sound that everyone can hear. So by being Jewish, we speak to the world. That's how we do it. In our particularism, we're universal. I don't think that that's gonna go away. I don't wanna tell you, I don't wanna stand up here and like offer bromides about all the different ways, Jewish education, Jewish summer camps, trips to Israel, you all know this, you all know this. 
I'm talking more broadly, deeply philosophically, which is I really do believe that there is a current of energy in Jewish history and Jewish tradition that won't all of a sudden end. And in fact, the I know you're going to have uh, Dara Horn here in March. One of the things she likes to talk about, which I will anticipate for her, because I like to talk about it too, is that Jewish stories are stories without endings. Jewish stories don't finish and they lived happily ever after. If you think about the, the Torah, the Torah is a book without an ending, right? That book behind me, it's all about how God creates the world, puts people in this perfect place, says, don't do one thing, just one thing you shouldn't do. Five minutes later, they do it, right? Kicks them out. Then they do all sorts of other bad stuff. And finally, God says, okay, I'm going to try it with one representative people. And the idea of this people is I'm going to bring them across a desert after slavery and put them in the land of Israel. I've just told you, the, now you don't have to read the book. I've just told you the entire Torah, right? However, when the Torah finishes, they're still in the desert. They never make it. Now, it's true in the book of Joshua, they get to Israel, but it's not like this perfect, promised, wonderful land of milk and honey. No. They are, in fact, about the journey, not about the getting there. Because when they get there, truth is, it's not so great. It wasn't great then, it wasn't great now. Years ago, years ago, I read this book by, by the writer Andre Moreau called Anti-Memoirs. It was his autobiography. It was called Anti-Memoirs, honestly, because he lies a little bit. But okay. Um, <laughs> It's just like the French General Patin. Someone once asked him why he didn't write his memoirs, and he said, because I have nothing to hide. Um, <laughs> but actually, he had a lot to hide, but that's a, separate, that's a separate question. Nonetheless, so in the beginning of the anti-memoirs book, Moreau tells the following story. He says, I served in the war with this guy who was a giant hulking figure of a man. Years later, I ran across him, and he'd become a parish priest. And so I said to him, you've spent 20 years in the confessional listening to, to people's deepest secrets. What have you learned about human nature? And first the guy says, you know, you're not allowed to take anything out of the confessional, blah, blah, blah. But finally he says, okay, I'll tell you two things. First of all, he says, everybody has more pain than you imagine. Everybody. Everyone has a story, everyone has pain. Everyone thinks that only they have pain and the other person doesn't have pain. Everybody has pain. And then he says, and the second thing, and, and, and Moreau gives it this sort of authorial flourish. He goes, he threw his arms up into the star-sown night and said, there is no such thing as a grown-up." And I remember when I read that, I thought, that is exactly the message of the Torah. They're all in the wilderness. It's painful in the wilderness. It's miserable in the wilderness, which is why they keep talking about going back to Egypt, right? It's not happy in the wilderness. And what are the Israelites called? They're not called the Israelites. They're called the children of Israel. And they act like children, just like we do. 
And the whole story is how do you get through the wilderness, all we children, together? And that's the legacy that Judaism gave to the world, is what does it mean to be a child of the wilderness? And now our answer is you need a guide, which is God, you need a map, which is the Torah, and you need a community, because no one can do it alone. Which, by the way, it's worth knowing, what is the first comment that Judaism makes about human nature? The very first comment in the Torah, lo tov heyot ha'adam levado. It's not good for a person to be alone. The first thing that the Torah condemns is loneliness. So we gave this gift of community to the world and this gift of journey to the world. And even by the way, let me just make a little bit of a chauvinistic and politically incorrect comment about Israel. When God said to Abraham, these are the borders and this is your land, and God gives you this land. You know the other thing that we gave to the world for the first time? Borders that say that what is outside the border is not yours. I don't know why people don't realize this, but it's true. God doesn't say, this is your land. And by the way, if you want to conquer that other land, you can do that too. No. There are two and a half tribes that stay outside of Israel, right? Reuven, God, and Chatzim, Menashe. But they are outside of Israel. It's very clear they're outside of Israel. And Moses never says, oh, well, we'll just annex this too. No. Borders don't only mean you get to dwell within it, but it means that what is outside of it doesn't belong to you. And that also is a really important lesson then and now. So we have a great deal to continue to teach the world, but by the way, we can only teach it to the world if we learn it ourselves first, right? Because you can't, you can't teach what you don't have. But if we do, then of course we will continue to survive because the world will continue to need us as I really deeply believe that it does. And not just because we have a lot of Nobel Prize winners, which I'm very happy about, don't get me wrong. I think that's great. But because we have this sort of deep tradition of wisdom that won't disappear. And I wanna, I wanna close. I know we're gonna have questions and comments by, with two, two final thoughts. Don't get too excited. They could take a couple minutes, but two final thoughts, right? <laughs> One is that the way Jews have stayed alive is by telling our story. That's how we stayed here. Because we wandered from place to place. You don't have magnificent synagogues like you have magnificent cathedrals all over Europe. And the reason you don't have them, among other things, is because we were always getting kicked out. <laughs> So who could build these magnificent synagogues? Or if we did, by the way, that's why a synagogue is called a shul. I don't know if you know this. Because when Jews were allowed back in, in countries, various countries throughout Europe, it was one of the most common pieces of anti-Jewish legislation is that you cannot build a synagogue in a place where anything else has been built over where the synagogue used to be. So what Jews would say is we're not building a synagogue. We're building a school. It's called a shul. Shul means school. There's people praying it, but that's not really why it's there. It's there to be a school. 
But because we were reportable people, all we had were our words. That's what we carried from place to place to place. That's why every synagogue everywhere in the world is focused on a book. Always focused on a book. In other words, words. That's why you kiss the mezuzah. Why, you're not kissing the agam design, nice as it is. You're kissing the words inside, right? It's God's name. It's a word that is holy. And so there's that beautiful story Eli Wiesel used to love to tell um, about the, when the Baal Shem Tov needed a miracle, he would go to a special place in the forest and he would have a special blessing and he would light a special candle and God would give him the miracle. In time, by the time he died, the candle had burned out. So the Magid of Mezrish, his disciple, used to go to the place in the forest and say the blessing and say, God, I'm sorry that the candle was burned out, but we need the miracle and God would give him the miracle. Generations passed. And his descendant would sit in his office and say, dear God, we need a miracle. We need one badly. But the candles long since burned out. We don't know the spot in the forest and I don't even remember the blessing anymore. But I know the story and that has to be enough. And then he would get the miracle. Because part of the miracle of the Jewish tradition is that we still remember the story. You know, we talk about the miracle of Hanukkah. It's not a great miracle that God can make some oil last for eight days. If you create the world, right? <laughs> so you make a little oil last. It's really, honest to God, it's not, you know. But it's an amazing miracle that we still tell the story. That's amazing. Thousands of years later, just like those pastors remembered the story of Esther thousands of years later. That's a miracle. And so let me close with this. Um, right before the high holidays, uh, I was... Uh, I was reading the obituaries because I'm old enough now that I read the obituaries, okay? I just, not, not like the old joke, not because I want to make sure I'm not in it, but, <laughs> but because, because as you get older, there's something that is fascinating about seeing people's lives and the arc of their lives. And so um, whether you like or you hate the New York Times, and I don't want to get into the New York Times, they really do a good obituary, okay? <laughs> so there was an obituary of, of uh, Ruth Siegler, I can't remember her sister's name, was Ilsa Nathan, I think, I'm not sure. But anyway, so I re was reading this obituary about two women who survived Auschwitz and they survived when they were young and their father, Jacob, I believe was his name. He said to them, you're young, you might survive. And he gave them a final blessing, the priestly blessing. May God bless you and keep you. May God's countenance shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God be with you and grant you peace. He, they never saw him again. They, however, survived, and they wrote a book called My Father's Blessing, and the end of the obituary was the daughter, who had just died, said, I never imagined that that blessing would have to last me the rest of my life. So the first night of Rosh Hashanah, I told that story. Uh, by the way, later in one of those um, somebody saw it and knew the son and the son wrote me an email and said it was so nice. That was an amazing thing. Um, one of those times where you say technology is okay. 
But I told the story in part because I wanted to tell another story, which is what I want to close with, which you may or may not be aware of, but it's good to be reminded. So about four, you know, in the Jewish tradition, we don't do a lot about the afterlife. I mean, you may or may not know that there is considered to be an afterlife in Judaism. Every page of the Talmud talks about Olam Haba, the world to come, but we don't generally describe exactly what it's going to be like for the very simple reason that nobody has any idea. You didn't know what this world was going to be like before you came into it, right? Nobody could imagine mountains and tuna fish and water bottles. So why would you think you know what the next world is going to be like? Um, or as Mark Twain says in Letters from Earth, he goes, people think they're going to lie on green fields and listen to harp music. He said, you wouldn't do it for five minutes while you're alive. So I don't know why they think you're going to be happy doing it for all of eternity after you die. But okay. But there is some conception of Gan Eden, right? Which is the world to come, the good, the good world to come, and hell, which is called Gehenna. Gehenna is a real place. It's the Valley of Hinnom, and it's right outside the walls of Jerusalem. And the reason it was called hell, Gehenna, is because that's where Canaanites used to sacrifice children. They actually have unearthed the altars, okay? So for the Jews, that was hell. So about 40 years ago or so, I don't remember the exact number of years, some uh, archaeologists were excavating in Gehenna. And they came upon the oldest bit of surviving Torah that exists in the world. You can see it in the Israel Museum. They were these two rolled up silver amulets. And it was a priestly house that was destroyed in 586 BCE. So more than 2,500 years ago. And these little bits of Torah have been lying there ever since. When they finally unrolled them, what did they find? They found the priestly blessing. May God bless you and keep you. May God's countenance shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God be with you and grant you peace. Which means that the oldest bit of Torah in the world is a blessing of peace that was snatched from hell. And if you ask me, what is the Jewish people, especially after the last hundred years, the blessing of peace that was snatched from hell is as good a definition of what we have been and aspire to be as anything else. And I know that it is a statement of faith, but I really deeply believe it. And I think that it is backed by history that whatever we will be in the future, that won't disappear. Thank you. So much, thank you so much. Okay, my friends, we want to take some questions, so feel free to raise your hand if you would like to um, not give a speech, but ask a quick question. Thank you for everything and for sharing all of your teachings online. Um, so what do you make of the pipeline crisis in the Jewish professional world? Why aren't there enough younger people compelled to um, aspire to be teachers? So the question was, I don't know if everybody heard what about the pipeline crisis in the Jewish world. Why aren't there more, why, why aren't there 
more enough Jewish teachers, Jewish professionals, rabbis, um, which is true. There's a crisis of uh, a crisis, at least a, a shortage. I don't know at what point it reaches a crisis. Um, one of the reasons, let me first say that part of this is the, is the downside of a blessing. When I was a kid, we had the most gifted teachers in Jewish schools, and they were all women who couldn't get careers in other things. So that was great for us, wasn't so great for them. And part of it is that, you know, your local pediatrician in an earlier incarnation might have been a Hebrew school teacher. And it's, it's really true. I mean, when I think of some of the teachers I had, they were incredibly gifted women. And, and this was their route to do something. So that, there's that. But there is also the fact that I think we don't sufficiently, um, and this is partly, partly our doing also, rabbis don't tend to recruit rabbis. And part of the reason that we don't do that is because, partly because we have a tendency to complain like Jews do. So we talk about, oh, it's really tough to be a rabbi, um, which it is in some ways, but in other ways not. Uh, but also because parents don't, there was a time when like being a rabbi was your kid, the rabbi, that was the top of the social scale. Like you couldn't do better than that. That's not the way the Jewish community thinks about it anymore. Now it's like, your kid going to be a rabbi? Are they going to be a lawyer? Are they going to be a businessman, a businesswoman, uh, so on? Um, so, and also the model is changing. Like my niece is a rabbi in Atlanta. She would never consider being a rabbi in the kind of place that I'm a rabbi in. No, she wants to sing. She wants to have a guitar and a small community around her and have a very different sort of model, which I think is a good thing because I think we need different sorts of models from the model that I grew up with and that I um, am finishing doing. Um, <laughs> but until like teachers in general, until we pay well and until they have social esteem, I think we're gonna have a problem. How you change that, I don't know exactly. Um, but among other things, I think that it's, I mean, this is, I know this is preaching to the choir, but it's tragic that Jewish day school costs what it costs. I don't want to, I mean, Jews, I know this, this will shock you, but Jews are generally, as a community, very rich. We really are. And we could pay for every Jewish child to have a Jewish education if that was enough of a priority among the major philanthropists of the Jewish world. But it's not. But if you gave enough Jewish kids a good enough Jewish education, you would have a lot more Jewish professionals. I really do think so. So it starts young. Um, and and I, wish, I wish we did better. It's, it bothers me that a Catholic kid can go to Catholic school for nothing and a Jewish kid can't go to Jewish school. Now we give out a lot of scholarships. We do, but even with scholarships, it's still very expensive and public school is free. So. Uh-oh. <laughs>
I remember 25, 30 years ago when I was in LA and I was following, but it was a big deal in the LA Times about Rabbi Walker talking about there's really no evidence of the Exodus in the Bible. 25 uh, years, could, couldn't have been me 25 or 30 years ago. 20, 20, 30, no, it was. You're, you're yeah. I was at the time also at the University of California and I was studying form criticism and the, and the yeah. disassembling of the Bible as a yeshiva boy, that's what I experienced. Is there a way to counteract uh, uh, the forces of archeology span and the forces so that we teach children Excuse me for this. Just like Jesus said to his followers, right. you have to be like as a child to follow my teachings. Why don't we teach our children the purity of the Torah rather than the Mishigaf with the archaeologists from Israel? Okay, so let me let me see if I can fairly summarize. Why don't we teach kids that this is just all true and not let them later worry about the complications that that will. So the reason I gave the sermon was exactly because I had seen the results of that too many times, which is, I even saw it in rabbinical school. People come in, they're rabbinical students, they're exposed to biblical criticism for the first time and it shatters them. And what I wanted, the whole point of that sermon was, you don't have to believe everything in the Torah is historical to believe in the sanctity of the Torah. The, the genie is so out of the bottle. All, I mean, there's a computer in front of every kid. I remember when I, like, it was only maybe 15 years ago that we had this expert come to Sinai about this from Boston, a big childhood expert and so on. And someone asked him, what do I do about my kids in the computer? And he said, don't have one in their bedroom. Like just have a computer in the living room that everybody can use because there was still a time when you could do that for like five minutes. <laughs> so it's no longer, you can't teach that unless you live in a very cloistered, I guess it's not right to call it Jewish community cloister, but <laughs> a very insular community. And we don't, we just don't. So my my theory was better to present them young with the facts and also for it to come from someone who says but i'm still a rabbi and that doesn't shatter my faith i don't think uh, simple faith is no longer a possibility for jews who who are extremely highly educated are going to go to college or all on the internet um it just won't work it won't work it's also not true but Apart from the fact that it's not true. A question from my friend Eileen on Zoom. Does it seem that the reform and conservative movements are getting closer? All Jews are getting closer. No. Um, <laughs> so yes, it does. Um, what's happening? What's happening in the uh, in the Jewish world is a little bit what's happening in the political world, which is centers are falling out, and people are moving to the two to two sides. Um, I think the conservative movement is certainly more liberal than it was. Look, here's, okay, just, just among us, right? <laughs> About, I don't know, six, seven years ago, maybe less, I wrote an article in the Jewish Review of Books. And the thesis of that article was as follows. 
I talked about the fact that in my conservative congregation, even among the more traditional, so people will have a Shabbos dinner, they'll come to synagogue in, in the morning, and then they'll go and have lunch on Rodeo Drive. Um, and here is the real issue. When you say to someone, God told you, you must do this. That's a very powerful, persuasive tool. If God says you cannot eat that, that meat with that cheese, and you really believe that God doesn't want you to do it, chances are you won't do it. You might, but even then you'll feel a powerful sense of transgression. As soon as you take that away, what you're in is the world of there are good, it's good for you to do this. And all of non-literalist, I won't even say non-orthodox because some orthodoxy is in this same situation. All non-literalist Judaism is about the reason you should keep kosher is because it's good for you this way. The reason you should keep Shabbos is because it's good for you that way. The reason you should, I mean, the speech tonight, the reason that Jewish people, it's good for the world this way. And that will never be as compelling as the creator of the universe told you you have to do it. It just won't. And so all non-literalist rabbis spent all of their time telling people why it is good for them, for the world, for each other, for their family, for their kids, for whatever, for posterity, for memory of people who, you, who have gone to be Jewish. And that is a much harder case to make. And what tends to happen then is the more onerous practices fall away. Because if it's good for me, well, it's good for me, but that doesn't mean that I can't have lunch on Shabbos, right? So yeah, I think that there's gonna be a certain convergence. I don't know exactly where it's going to go, um, but also, also <laughs> I am in the either enviable or unenviable position of knowing that it's not in my hands. I really mean it, that a younger generation of rabbis and Jews will be making these decisions, and I hope they make them wisely. And that I, I well, it's not like, I mean, I'm not like disappearing from the world tomorrow, I hope, but, but I did what I could. And some of, the, some of the convictions of my younger colleagues are not mine. I don't agree with them. But you know what? I had my chance, and they have to have their chance. That's the only, that's the only decent and sensible and also sane attitude for somebody who's older to take. Thank you. Rabbi Green. Rabbi, uh, you spoke beautifully about Judaism at the crossroads tonight. Uh, I'm curious about Rabbi Wolfie at the crossroads, and in particular, the fact that this past five holidays was your last one as the Max Fed Senior yep. Rabbi at Sinai Temple, yep. that Rabbi Skuzik and Sherman will be taking on uh, your pulpit and what you think about when you think of legacy and the journey to this decision and moment in your life. Uh, so I think a lot of things, but thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, I, I was... I was the rabbi at Sinai, it'll be 26 years. And if you count my doing high holiday services, which I started to do from the time that I was a student, I've been there 39 years. It's a long time. And I enjoyed every second of it, except the ones that I didn't. <laughs> I don't regret any of, I don't regret doing it. It was wonderful and growthful. And I am so looking forward to um, handing it on to younger colleagues. Uh, I was saying at dinner, they're really, I mean, I am experiencing in my own life 
the reality that keeping younger people out of businesses, out of boards, out of, is a terrible mistake because I see the enthusiasm they have to do things that should be done that I know I would go, eh, you know, <laughs> I tried that, it didn't work. And, but I, so, so I know that it's time, you have to know it. I remember my, when my father retired, I said to him, dad, they all want you to stay. And he said, I wanna leave when they want me to stay rather than stay when they want me to leave. <laughs> so I'm very much looking forward to, I mean, I'm working, with the Maimonides Fund, which is a fund in New York that I'm doing some work for that puts out Sapir, where I just wrote an article about Judaism and cancel culture that you can find online. It's edited by Brett Stevens, um, and it's a really interesting journal, S-A-P-I-R, Sapir. Um, and, uh, and all of this stuff, it's not paywalled, anybody can read any of it. Um, and I do an ethics column there with a wonderful uh, Orthodox, Rabbanit. Uh, I don't know exactly a rabbah, but it, there are different titles that she uses, Yaffa Epstein, um, brilliant woman. And so I look forward to doing that and some other stuff. And also I'm going to go next year for a year to Harvard to, as a visiting scholar and teach classes. And that will be wonderful. And I just want to do other things. So I, I feel like um, I've been unbelievably lucky to have done what I've done. And now I am unbelievably lucky to get the chance to do something else. Okay, I see a bunch of hands. Okay, Andrew, we're going first. Okay, Rabbi, uh, there's an old Jewish saying that someone who observes one more mitzvah than I do is a fanatic, mm -hmm. and one who observes one less is a goy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's the way we used to relate to each other, and it worked. <laughs> it worked. But I look at what's happening in the Jewish world today. And it's mirroring what's happening in the United States today. If you disagree with me, you're not a fanatic, you're not a goy, you're my enemy. Mm -hmm. Israel is having an election next week, and that has been the tenor of the campaign. Another one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this week, okay? <laughs> uh, yeah. Season six will right. be following shortly. Um, but my question is, how did we get to this point and how can we reverse it? So we once again, just call each other fanatics and boys and not enemies. I mean, it won't surprise you that it's not like I have the answer up my sleeve that it, to the question that every human being that I know who's concerned about public life is talking about. Um, I, instead, I will, I'll take it as a microcosm instead of a macrocosm, okay? Um, I have, um, there are two things I would say. One is I get attacked all the time, all the time. Sometimes, and, and I'm, I don't mean disagreed with, I get disagreed with all the time, like everybody who, you know, I get disagreed, but I get attacked often. And here's what I have discovered. A good 80% of the time, I won't say 100, but a good 80% of the time, if you respond personally to an attack without an attack, it dissipates. That is, a lot of it is because anger begets anger begets anger. And if one person says, I hear you, I hear you, you're angry and you're upset. I really hear you, not like, not to say it as a cliche, but really to listen, it can make a huge difference on an individual level. Because also part of this, remember, part of this is about 
not just that you don't want to concede to the other side, which everybody understands, we don't want to concede to the other side. A lot of this is about if you say, let's say you're part of Trump anti-Trump, whichever one, okay? If you say something nice about Trump or bad about Trump, then you have just betrayed all the people that are on your team. And that's what's so hard is when you have a team, when you break from it, it becomes very painful and very difficult. And that's why when people say those things, you have to like give them a human opening to see you as a person as opposed to a member of the opposing team and they're gonna betray. The second thing is, um, the only way that I know, I, we were, I was saying at dinner, part of the problem of, of the current state is we have no common culture anymore. We don't watch the same shows. We don't read the same books. We don't go to the same movies. We don't listen to the same music. There was a time when everybody, everybody listened to, I don't know, the Beatles. I mean, everybody, even if you hated the Beatles, you still knew their music. Everybody watched Walter Cronkite. Now, the only thing that we know everybody has in common is politics. So everybody's conversation is dominated by politics because what am I gonna to talk to you about the novel I read on the plane over? I read a novel on the plane over. The chances that any more than maybe one or two people in this group have read that novel are minuscule. How am I, what am I gonna to talk to you about? But I can talk to you about politics. And so politics has like morphed into everything. And I always tell the people in my congregation, you should know everything about a person before you get to their politics. Ask them about their kids, ask them what they have for dinner, ask them where they go for vacation. Then when you know them as human beings, get to their politics. Look, I have half my congregation, maybe more, on Shabbat morning more are, are like ardent Trump supporters and the other half are not, okay? <laughs> really aren't. And I have to bury both of their parents and name both of their children. And when I do, I don't ask them who they voted for, which is a tremendous advantage because you actually get to know people as people before you get to how could you vote for this person or vote for that person. So that's the only way that I know. How do you implement that society-wide? That I don't know. Um, but also I wanna say one, one other thing, which is, um, <laughs> this is a little risky. I haven't actually said this, but I will say it. And I hope that I, eh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not risky, we'll see. <laughs> These are growing pains too. Society is becoming much more inclusive than it was when we were kids, much more inclusive. Groups that we didn't pay any attention to, and I'm not only talking racially, although racially too, but also like people who were different, who were shunted aside, who we thought of as weird or crazy or this or that, and now all of a sudden we're realizing, no, we're all part of this. And that means that we're going through some kind of social transformation that it's ultimately a really good thing. But, but growing pains are growing pains. And so it's gonna take time for us to, to reconfigure ourselves so that we can be a society again. Most societies for most of human history were very homogeneous. You were like us or you weren't part of us. 
The glory of America is it's not supposed to be that way. So we just have to do better. And by the way, as long as I'm being chauvinistic, nobody should know this better than Jews. Because we were always the different ones. And we used to say to the world all the time, make space for people who are different. So we have to make space for people who are different too, which sometimes means who are different from us ideologically, not only different from us in all, in all sorts of other ways, because that's what we always wanted. So it's what Sachs called the dignity of difference. Um, it's not easy. Of course, it's not easy. If it was easy, it would have been easy for people to accept Jews. It's not easy, but it's essential if we're going to survive. There's a young Scottish philosopher named McCaskill yes. who is talking and writing a lot now about long-termism. Yeah. Long-termism, which is to say that um, due to astronomical um, uh, human reproduction rates, um, that we should invest as much, perhaps much more, in the future, given how much bigger of an impact we can have on the astronomical numbers. Yeah. So given that, um, it shouldn't feel like it's mutually exclusive, but should Jews invest in the present or should Jews invest in the future? It's, uh, I, it's a great question. McCaskill's a really interesting, there's this movement called EA, effective al altruism, which is, uh, as uh, Rabbi Shmuley said, it's about the idea that why do you owe more to somebody who happens to be sitting next to you than someone who's going to be born in 10 years, right? You're a person, he's a person. Um, and, and by the way, this goes back to, I mean, the first thing that most Jews who know Jewish tradition think of is the story about the guy in the Talmud planting a carob tree. And someone says, why are you planting the carob tree? You're never going to see it grow. And he says, well, as my ancestors planted for me, so I'm planting for the next generation. Um, so I would say, yes, we, I mean, we do have to start thinking about what Jews will need in 10, 20, 50 years. Um, and what they'll need most are institutions of Jewish education that can give Jewish education to kids, I think, free, although that's a different question from what kinds of charities and other things um, we should be building. But yeah, the trick, part of the trick of long-termism is I have a much better chance of knowing what you need than knowing what somebody in 50 years will need. It's just, a, you know, it's harder to figure that out. Um, but, but yeah, I think that it's important to, to do our best, especially because, you know, this year I went to uh, the 125th anniversary of the World Zionist Congress in Basel. And we were honoring Herzl. And he said, after that, right, he wrote in his diary after that first Zionist Congress, and I, today I founded the Jewish state. No one believes me, but in 50 years, and 50 years and six months later, guess what? There was a Jewish state. So sometimes people are visionary enough to get it right long term. Please join me in, in thanking Rabbi David. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, to all 100 of you on Zoom and to all of you here, thank you. We have a dessert, uh, a very full dessert and wine and book signing in the courtyard. I hope you will join us. Please check out the many programs we have coming up in person and virtual if you're anywhere you are globally. And thank you, Temple Solel, for hosting. Um, thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Rabbi Wolfi. Uh, and mazel tov to Eliana Jaffe and Zachary Etzioni once again. Um, and have a great night. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, 
that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.